Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for bringing us here together as your body. I pray that you would just help us this morning as we just put all things aside to glorify you. Let us focus on you. And this morning we thank you for the privilege and the responsibility as well that comes in giving as children of you. Lord, I pray that you would use it. Lord, let us give sacrificially. Let us give generously and cheerful. Lord, that you may be glorified and your work may be done. We thank you for this opportunity to do so. In your name we pray. And all of God's people said... Amen. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited about tackling 1 Peter. Chosen to be exiles in a hostile world is the title of this message as we look at the first two verses of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book that I'm not quite sure how we're going to tackle. It is so deep that I don't want to rush through it. Almost every phrase is so doctrinally rich and something that you and I could swim and bathe in for a long time. So uh, straddle down and strap in. We're going to take our time and go through First Peter and get all that God has for us. Christians, and I want you to pay attention to this. You need to know this. For some of you, if you've been here for any time, this will not come as a shock or a surprise to some. It may. Christians are called to a life of suffering. We are not called to a life in which every day is Friday, meaning that every day is a weekend party. We are not called to have a wonderful plan of life, which means it's about our own personal flourishing and enjoying all that life may come. We, personally, as believers, are called to a life of suffering. Now, some of you will say amen because you know that you're living it out right now. We will suffer in salvation, sanctification, submission, and service as we go through 1 Peter. That's what we'll see those four things. Salvation, sanctification, submission, and service. This morning we begin a journey through the first letter of Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Five chapters that will be both challenging and encouraging us to live in a world that is hostile to our faith. And we understand that now more so probably than any time in the past hundred plus years. We live in a world that is hostile to our faith. I read somewhere yesterday or the day before that a report came out that once again for the second year in a row that Christians are the largest group of persecuted people around the world. America has not seen that type of persecution. Our persecution tends to be more subtle, a little bit more political, maybe a little bit social awkwardness or ridiculeness, but typically we don't see the persecution. So when we say that we suffer, we must keep in mind that we do not suffer as the rest of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world do. However, Peter writes to prepare us for that type of suffering. This letter may seem very Jewish, and that's mainly because it's written by Peter, who is a Jew, but it's also because it's full of 
Old Testament imagery. As we go through, we'll see lots of, of imagery and lots of uh, uh, pointing and examples of Israel. However, it is written to the Gentile Christians and has great application for you and I today. So without any hesitation, let's go ahead and read this passage of 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 2. Ready? Let's read this together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for an obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, give us wisdom this morning as we tackle this great letter. It is so full of wonderful truths that we need to embrace. Some will challenge us, some will encourage us, and some may even make us want to just shiver as we consider the implications for us in this world. But yet, Lord, you have given it to us for our edification. So Father, as I speak, let me speak the words that are edifying. Let me speak your words. Give us the discernment to know the difference between my mere opinion and our own uh, agendas and presuppositions and understand to your spirit what your truths are. And Lord, may you be glorified as we respond to the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to start off as we're looking really kind of at the book as a whole in our first message. I want to give you some information. The first thing is about the man himself, the author. The author is Peter. He was the most prominent of the 12 disciples of Christ in the Gospels. He was the leader in the New Testament church. His birth name was Simon, and it was changed to Peter by Jesus. Peter means rock or stone. He and his brother Andrew were fishermen by trade and were in business with the fellow disciples of Christ, James and John. He was married and lived in the fishing town of Capernaum. We saw much of this as we went through Mark the last few years. He was acknowledged as the first among equals among the other disciples. He is always named first when the disciples are listed in the Gospels. He was a natural leader, and he usually served as their spokesman. He would be the one that after they were complaining or talking, would come to Jesus and speak for the group. Peter made the great confession of the identity of Jesus that serves as the foundation of the church in Matthew 16, 16. When Christ said, who do you say that I am? He said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And his last years were spent in Rome where he wrote the first two letters of Peter where he eventually, by tradition says, suffered martyrdom under Nero being crucified, as tradition says, upside down. He was both a building block of the church and a stumbling block with his words and actions. One theologian notes that Peter was eager and impulsive and energetic, self-confident, aggressive, and daring. All the things that probably you and I would say, oh, I, I would like to be that. If, if I could have those leadership qualities, there would be nothing that would stand in my way. But he was also unstable and fickle and weak and cowardly. Many times he was led by his impulse rather than logical reasoning. He could go from one extreme to the other very quickly. A few examples in scriptures include when he got out of the boat to walk on water with Jesus and he made a few steps before he was distracted by the storm and took his eyes off Jesus 
and began to sink. He boasted about fighting and being willing to die for Christ as Christ shared with him. Remember in Mark that he must die and he must suffer. And Peter said, no, we will fight for you and we will even die for you. But then just a few short hours, he denied Jesus three times. He proclaimed liberty from the law for the Gentiles in the book of Acts. But then was denounced by Paul for withdrawing from those very same Gentiles because of peer pressure from the Jews and eating with the Gentiles. Peter, though, was a man of action who was molded by God into a man of stability, humility, and courageous service. And like David, he was a man who served God in his generations. In his strengths and his weaknesses, foibles and all, God molded him into a wonderful leader of the New Testament church. Now the message, the message of 1 Peter is, is very simple. It's going to come very clear to us very quickly as we work through the book. The message is simply this, how to handle suffering as a Christian. And I think that's something that all of us want to know. How do we handle suffering if we're a Christian? If, if I've been redeemed, if I'm a new creature, how do I deal with this suffering? How do I even think about suffering? And I think this is something that the church really needs with the propagation of the prosperity and health and wealth ministries and teachers that are going off the gospel. And let me tell you, I don't like to name names and I don't like to, to do that from the pulpit and point out, but you have to be very, very careful. There is so much going on that's being propagated as Christian that is not. You go into the Christian bookstore and you can be grieved by the titles that are being sold. How to and how to do this and how to be, uh, you know, how to be a better Christian, but how to get all these things. I want to encourage you, you need to be very, very careful with some of the reading materials. If you ever have any questions, please see Randy or I or Dustin. We'd love to share with you and give you, an, and we're working on getting a good library here for you that you can have good books because in the end is how to handle suffering is very much a worldview issue and how we handle it must be done in a biblical way. So it's simply how to handle suffering as a Christian. The answer Peter is going to write out is very simple. It's one word. If you're taking notes, the answer to how to handle suffering as a Christian is hope. It's hope. God gives us hope in the midst of our suffering. And there are some of you, and I know that, are going through suffering. Suffering in health. Suffering financially, suffering in relationships, suffering just in general. And sometimes it can get so much. And some of you have been called to a life of suffering that many of us could not even comprehend. And your question is, where is God? If God is sovereign, if God is providential, then how can I say Jehovah Jireh, my God, my provides? Because it seems like I never have what I need or have enough. I've been there myself. I want to challenge you and encourage you that there is hope. Peter is going to share with us, your lot in life may be difficult. Maybe even more difficult than the Christian you're sitting next to. But there is hope. One teacher writes that 1 Peter instructs us that God's people are a misunderstood minority that's living under the rule of a different king other than Caesar. 
And that persecution, especially speaking of there in the first century, offers believers a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus. And we're going to unpack that as we go through this book. I'm going to give you a lot of things today that may just build up and you say, hey, there's tension there. You haven't brought it through, but I'm sharing with you these things. I want to build up that tension and you and I will start to unfold those as we go along. First Peter was written most likely in the early 60 ADs from Rome. It deals with the local persecution of the original intended audience. The Christians in the Roman province in Asia Minor, now in modern Turkey. If, if you could just look up here at the screens, you'll see there's a map here. And over in the thing, I don't have a pointer, but you'll see right in this area, you'll see what's now known as Turkey, Turkey and you'll see there in the color, Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia. This is where the letter's going. It's written kind of a circular letter. He would have made a circle there and came right back through. So that's the area that we have. Many of those provinces are probably not there and named in those ways. In some, you have some of the churches. There was a church of Galatia, a book of Galatians, and we see that. But that's the area that Peter's writing. And as I said earlier, the book is filled with imagery of Israel from the Old Testament. Peter will use many of the same terms and language to show that the Gentiles have been included into the family of God with Israel. Now, this does not mean that the church has replaced Israel, but they will have much in common. We are now grafted in, and those terms in many ways are going to be applied to us as examples to look back and see how Israel reacted during their times of suffering. There are some important words and phrases and concepts that we're going to look at, such as apostle, elect, exiles, dispersion, foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the Spirit, obedience of the believers, and sprinkling with blood of Jesus as we look just simply at these first two verses. So let's go into it. If you're taking notes, the first thing that we see is he says an apostle Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle was considered an authoritative messenger of God. They would be similar to some respects, in some respects, to the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, you and I must remember that not everything that a prophet or an apostle said or wrote was directly from God. Paul, Peter, James, John, they probably wrote many letters, gave many messages, but not everything was infallible or was the word of God, just as any prophets, uh, when he spoke, was not infallible. They were human messengers of God. And that's important as we look at here, is that Peter here, as he writes about suffering, is a man who's living through suffering. He is not some superhuman. He is not some demigod or some divine being. He's just a human messenger of God who were to be faithful in serving God. When a prophet was commanded to relay a direct message from God, it was usually preceded with the phrase, Thus saith the Lord. As we saw in our scripture reading, Thus says the Lord. We saw in our scripture that earlier. So when Peter prefaces his letter with this phrase, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, what he's doing here is he's noting that this was more than just a letter of good advice or, or a record of, a hey, let me tell you, let's catch up with what's going on, but it's a binding word from God for the church then and even today. 
So he's an apostle. Second one we'll see is that he says he writes to those who are the elect. Now, when Peter remarks that the readers are elect, that means that they were chosen by God. What must be understood with that word today is that election here is not based on merit or potential, but on God's will alone. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7? He's now using, once again, a word that was used in the Old Testament concerning Israel. In Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Old Testament, go back to Genesis and work your way to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to what is written here. It says, For you are a people holy, speaking, this is God speaking to Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, and look at this, you may want to underline this phrase, set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people, but in verse 8, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll see this in some time. Peter informs his readers that they too are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may be proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous lights. He writes, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like Israel, Christians have been chosen by God to be his people. Theologian Thomas Schreiner notes that divine election reminds the reader that they have status, not because they are so worthy or noble, but because God has, this is important, has bestowed his grace upon us. You and I sung that testimony when we sung it early this, this morning, grace alone. Grace alone. Not of anything I've done. I worked my fingers to the bone. You know, I had a head full of rocks, a heart made of stone. But God chose us. And looking, he says, I'm going to bestow my love. On you. Now, to some, I have to admit that this is a horrible and difficult doctrine to grasp, to understand, and even accept. I understand that. It is one that I have struggled with mightily. It is all of that and can be very difficult. Yet at the same time, it is meant to bring us comfort, knowing that God has loved us before creation. It's out of his free will that he chose to love us. The point here is that you and I need to understand that we are elected by God and that should motivate us to a life of obedience in the midst of suffering. In other words, God is saying, I'm faithful to my people. I was faithful in the suffering of Israel to bring them out of Egypt. Peter is now writing to these people here in, in Galatia them and says, listen, I know you're going through suffering, but don't despair. You are my people. I will be faithful to you. We read earlier in Jeremiah when he says, I know my plans for you and I will bring you out. He's saying to Israel, I have bestowed my love on you and I will bring you out. 
I will give you comfort. But he says to those that aren't his elect, he says, I'm going to devastate them. The judgment is on them, but on you is my love. What did he tell his elect exiles? He says, hey, build houses, have families, eat of their food, be a testimony to them. In the same way he's bringing that to those people, the first readers, in the same way it's now translated now to us 2,000 years later, as elect exiles, we are to be God's people, trusting that God is faithful. Which brings us to the third. As Peter identifies them as elect exiles of the dispersion. Exiles refers to pilgrims, people that are living in a land not their own. In chapter 2, verse 11, Peter will refer to Christians as sojourners and exiles, meaning that as believers, our citizenship is not here on earth, but it's in heaven. Paul says the same thing when he writes to the church of Ephesus that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And to the church of Philippi, Paul will write, our citizenship is in heaven. Again, Peter is writing a word picture of Israel. Israel had suffered through several forced exiles in its history. Dispersion in the Old Testament was normally a sign of God's judgment. But in this case, Peter uses it metaphorically to connect Christians with Israel. Like Israel, they are pilgrims wandering the desert waiting for the promised land. They are living among people who are different from them. That difference includes culture and social structure and ideology and even religion. As Christians, it's important for you and I to remember and to recognize that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. But I'm afraid there's so many of us that we've built our homes, we've had our families, but we are so entangled of this world that we're like Lot. Remember we talked about Lot last week? How it was very hard for him to get himself out of Sodom. Eventually his wife looked back and died because of it. And there's so many of us that do not realize that we're part of the elect exiles of the dispersion. This is not our home. Let me tell you, if this is your home, then you are to be pitied. If there is no life after, if there's no new heaven and new earth to look forward to, if that is not your hope, then I don't know what gets you through the day. I don't know what gets you through the difficulties of life. And I would encourage you today, if you're struggling, and life will cause you, some of you are probably so shaken, and you're suffering, and you're so despair, I would encourage you, remember, this suffering is just for this world only. One day we'll be delivered from the presence of sin that so weighs so heavily upon us, and we will live in the new heaven and a new earth. Christ is coming back for his children. Amen? He says he'll wipe away all tears from our eyes. Now that may mean that our journey, 70 plus years, may be here on this earth and we will entail suffering, but yet that is short when we keep heaven and eternity in mind. The point that Peter is writing here to those Christians and to us today 
is that we understand that as exiles, that should motivate us to live a life of trusting God's protection and providence. That's what he was writing there in Jeremiah. He says, do these things. I will take care of you. Now, he, he gave them a time frame. You and I don't have that. In seven years, I will come back for you and I will reunite you. And we see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. We don't have that time frame. Our 70 years may be filled right here on this earth. But still we know that he's coming for us. We are God's children. Let me tell you this. Here's what I want you to find comfort and strength in. Is that God will not abandon his children nor forget us in our suffering. He then goes on to say that we are elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, I want to take those three phrases because he says, you are elect exiles for this reason. Because you are elect exiles, this is what you've been elected exiles for. And it's important for us to understand the first one we're going to see is the foreknowledge of God. Now, this speaks of a predetermined relationship. Dr. Schreiner writes that foreknowledge should be understood in covenantal terms. Now, you and I typically in America, we think not so much in covenantal, but in contracts. You understand that word contracts. Here is what you do. Here is what you'll do for me. And if one of us breaks that contract, what do we do? We sue, right? You have, you have reason to sue. So there's expectations for this, and here's what you do, and if it's not met. Now, covenant is different, and that's more of a biblical term. Covenant is where one person says, I will do this no matter what. Now, when we say God puts his covenantal love on us, that's God saying, I'm going to love you, I'm going to care for you, I'm going to take care of you no matter what. It's not based on our faithfulness, but based on His faithfulness, God's faithfulness, amen. And so you need to recognize that when Scripture is, we don't have a contract, we have a covenant. So this speaks of a predetermined relationship. And so let's go back. Dr. Schreiner writes that foreknowledge should be understood in covenantal terms. And the foreknown, us, are those upon whom God has bestowed His covenantal favor and affection. What Peter is telling his readers that God has set his love on them beforehand. He set his affection upon us before time began. Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We see this in Psalms 139 where David writes and says, You knew me before my members were even assembled. Now listen, foreknowledge is not God gazing into the crystal ball of future or a good guesstimate of what the future holds, but it's his foreordaining All that takes place. He is the author of what takes place, not guessing what it is. In Acts 2.23, 
Peter preached that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That means that God planned for Jesus to be arrested, tortured, and crucified. And for you and I, we say, what type of God is that? However, that also means that God planned for Jesus to be raised from the dead, to save us, and then to come back and bring us to God. I know this, again, is a tough doctrine. The Father, the God, the Father knows history, not because he looks into the halls of time and is able to know what happens. He's not a future teller, but because he is the author of all things. And he's able to write, all things are happening as he has already written them. Now that should bring comfort to you and I in times of suffering. Because that suffering is from God. I was sharing this with someone last week. I, you know, at the end of 2016, those last few weeks, everyone was talking about how bad 2016 was. You know, this person died, X died, Y died. You know, you know this person became president and life is just terrible. Looking at this and everyone started right. 2016, don't take another life. 2016, stop. As if 2016 was some type of, you know, character, some type of, entity and complaining about what 2016 was doing and I wanted to challenge a few people that I was talking to is you must be careful for one time is not an entity but God is and all these happen things happen as according to God's plan and I and I said to someone I don't remember who it was but I said we need to be careful about grumbling and complaining about what 2016 brought into our life we need to be careful about complaining and grumbling who the president is or decisions that are being made and politics are happening in the fact that we may be grumbling and complaining about the very will and plan of God. Hence why he says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now, in the big picture, we say, okay, but when you and I are in the dark night of our soul and our suffering is so difficult, and it's at the point where maybe we're being torn apart. It's hard to understand that God wrote these days for us. But I would bring you to the Psalms as David understood this. He would cry out for the Lord, Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself would then use those words in the same way. But in each instance, God speaks into those hurts. God speaks into that suffering. He says, I know what you're going through. I've written this for you. And this has a purpose and a plan. God has a purpose in saving us and placing us in our present position. And I don't know where you are in your life, but God has a purpose and a plan. Don't despair about your life. Everything is going according to God's will. Scriptures encourages us that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Paul would write, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. As we go through this, this is difficult to understand and it's difficult to accept. But I hope to show you as we go through 1 Peter that Christ God has given us a hope as the Father knows all, He has planned all. We are never outside of His will. We may be outside of His revealed will, but
but never outside of his will for our lives in which and where we're going. We'll say more of that in a different time. The third thing we see is not only the foreknowledge of God the Father, but we also see that we have been elect exiles for the sanctification on the Spirit. Now, sanctification, you've seen this, where we've talked about this quite a bit over the years. It means to be set apart, consecrated for a special purpose. Israel, once again, was a nation that was set apart from the other nations. And God bestowed His law and His love on them that other nations may see and glorify God. In the New Testament, it usually refers to a progressive growth of holiness in the lives of Christians. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians that the will of God is our sanctification, that we will become more like Christ. That's what it means to imitate Christ. Christian means Christ-like. But in this passage in 1 Peter, he is using sanctification to indicate our one conversion, the point where the Holy Spirit set us apart by blowing into us spiritual light. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3 if you would. I really want you to catch this with me. Chapter 3, we recognize that we've been sanctified by the Spirit. It indicates conversion. In chapter 3, look at verse 4. This is that famous conversation between Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and Jesus in the dead of night. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? This is in reference to Jesus say, You must be born again. Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's just asking a logical question. Verse 5, Jesus answered him by saying, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Our calling, our election was to be sanctified. There was a purpose in our calling out. It wasn't that, hey, I'm just going to save you and then so you can just live your life and at the end you get new life. No, He has called us and exiled us that we may become like Christ and that begins by turning towards Him. We're to be set apart from the world. Paul is calling the believers of the church of Corinth that they were united with those that are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ourselves, if you are a believer of Christ, are part of that sanctified body, not only in all this world, but to those who have gone before us and to those who come after. That almost means that in calling us, God is saving us, it's meant to actually accomplish something. You being saved, and we'll use that term, salvation, it's meant to accomplish something. Salvation is more than just a get-out-of-hell free, get free card. It's more than just fire insurance. It imparts a new nature. We are new creatures, different from who we were before. So we've been elected and we've been exiled for a specific purpose that we may come like Christ. And that begins when the Spirit blows into us new life. And we will open that up as we see First Peter. You and I, the point that I would like to share is, you and I must recognize that we've been called and chosen by God and dispersed around the world, that we may be salt and light to the world around us. 
That's what the dispersion in Jeremiah was when he says, build houses and have families, is work around them, be in there, let them see who you are. May God's favor be upon you, and may they see that and bring glory to God. There's something different about Christians, or there should be. Fortunately, there isn't. And here's why I believe in my just dime store psychology here. Is I believe that God brings suffering in our life because how you and I deal with suffering shows how different we are from the world. Because it's already too bad that Christians, we entertain ourselves in the same way the world entertains. We pleasure ourselves in the same way that the world finds pleasure. We work very much and have the same thought about retirement and all these and things about money as the world. But how we deal with suffering gives a distinct difference. I've been to funerals where it's just a joyous occasion as we know that person had a testimony strong in Christ. And you see Christians just, yes, crying and weeping, but yes, also rejoicing. But I've been to funerals where no one comes. And I'm speaking over a man with maybe one or two people. And they're just like, oh, we're just doing this just to get over. And I've been at one's funerals where it's Christians, those who profess Christ, but they are so bewailing and crying that there's no hope there. There's no difference. And that's sad. How you and I handle suffering shows whether or not we're like Christ. And Peter will show that and deliver that to us as we go through. And then the last is obedience to Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. We've been exiled. We've been elect exiles because of the obedience for Christ and the obedience and the sprinkling of his blood. Now that refers to both man's obedience and Christ's obedience. Man's obedience is shown here in responding to the Holy Spirit's call with repentance and faith. That's what conversion is. When you hear the gospel, you hear the good news, you respond by repenting from dead works and turning towards Christ. Dr. Schreiner notes that conversion involves obedience and submission to the gospel. We have been called, elect, exiled, so that we may obey Christ. Jesus' obedience and suffering and dying on the cross provides cleansing and forgiveness of sin. Once again, one last turn, if you would. Exodus chapter 24, the second book of the Bible in the Old Testament. For we've been exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter, here in this passage, again, we see the imagery of Israel in the phrase sprinkling of his blood. We need to understand what that means. Exodus chapter 24. Verse 3, he gives us this picture here of what's happening in this day. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, speaking of the commandments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, look at this, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, Twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. In verse 5, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. In verse 6, here we go. 
And Moses took half the blood and he put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said, and here's where you may want to underline, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In the same way, we've been called out, elected exiles, so that we may respond to the Holy Spirit's call in repentance and faith. And with that, Jesus' blood has cleansed and forgiveness of sins as his blood metaphorically is sprinkled upon us. And our response is the same as the people of Israel. All that the Lord has said, we will do. I think this is important because I think there's two extremes that goes with Christians. One is when things are going well, we don't always obey God. We forget Him. And when we're going through times of suffering, we forget Him as well. We need to obey God on both extremes as well as we work our way in the middle. Christ's work on our behalf should motivate us to obedience. In this passage, we see the work of the Trinity. And we've been speaking about the Trinity in, in Sunday school, adult core classes. It's so important to understand how the Trinity works. And here we see in the work of Trinity in our salvation, as the Father foreknows, the Son cleanses, and the Spirit sanctifies. This is who we are as elect exiles, not only in those days, but for you and I in this world today. Peter ends with a personal blessing to his readers. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter desires that his letter may encourage and challenge them to live out God's purposes of election as they are dispersed among the nations facing persecution and hardship. And as we do the difficult work and the rewarding work of opening First Peter, and I'm going to encourage you, read with me each and every week and pray over the passage as I am. Let us come prepared to find the hope that comes in the midst of suffering and sanctifying and submitting and serving our holy God. For you and I need that, that others may see us and may that point to Christ and may they true to also worship. Let me end with this. To unbelievers, if you're here today and you have yet accepted Christ, you have not yet repented of your dead works, if you have not yet turned to Christ, how do you view suffering? Where does your hope come from in your worldview? In what or who do you look to for comfort? How do you make sense of your life? If I may, direct your hearts to God. Pray that God would call you to himself Pray that the Holy Spirit may blow into your dead life, into your heart, a new heart. Respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe. To believers here this morning, rejoice in your election. Praise the Father for calling you, the Holy Spirit for sanctifying you, and for Jesus for his perfect obedience that brought cleansing and forgiveness of sin. Trust in the providence and sovereignty of the Holy Trinity. Rest in the comfort that any and all suffering has a purpose in your life. And if you're here today and you know Christ, you've professed him, 
but you're struggling with suffering, you're struggling with obedience, you're struggling with the scriptures, you're struggling with this world. May I say, hold on to the promises of scripture. Do not doubt God's covenantal love towards his children. Your faithfulness may be in question, but his never is. He calls us to test and examine to see if we are in the faith. So pray and ask God for confirmation in your calling. Trust in his goodness and plan. Do not despair amidst your suffering. Sing for joy for the grace that God grants us. And may we all come together and live our lives as a body who loves God and gives him the glory. There we head bowed and every closed. For I want to take a moment to pause, to consider what has been spoken, to pray and ask the Spirit, how should I respond to your word today? I pray that you would take that moment. Maybe it's the encouragement. Maybe it's the motivation to obey. Maybe it's calling on him for the first time. Whatever it may be, would you respond to the Holy Spirit's call in response to his word? You're a good father. We love you. We thank you for your foreknowledge for placing your love, not because of anything that I've done, not because of any potential. For father, I am not worth it. I recognize that there is nothing within me like Paul. I'm the chiefest of sinners. But yet, you placed your love on me. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, who is making us more like you. And I thank you for the Son, Lord, whose obedience brought cleansing and forgiveness. Make it sufficient. Strengthen us in our exile. Let our hope be on your return, on that new heaven and that new earth. Give us strength to face a life in a world that is hostile to our faith and beliefs. We praise in Christ's name. God's people said once again, Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.